Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Utah State University has been awarded a three-year Farmers Market Promotion Program grant from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. The grant will fund a variety of capacity building, outreach, and marketing activities that will help connect more low-income and ethnically diverse populations to healthy local food. We're going to talk about that on the program today. We'll talk about sustainability, reducing food miles, preserving farmland, interesting case study uh, in Moab. Um, and uh, we bring in uh, to the program, back to the program, uh, Dr. Roslyn uh, Brain McCann, who is a Sustainability Communities Extension Specialist, also Associate Professor in the Department of Environment and Society. Um, Roslyn Brain McCann, welcome back. Thanks for having me, Tom. We appreciate you uh, being on with us. Um, we have in studio Lacree Jimenez, Marketing Coordinator. Um, with this uh, this project. Uh, thanks for coming in. Oh, it's great to be here. And on the phone, Reagan Emmons, uh, USDA Farmers Market Promotion Program Coordinator. Thank you. Good morning. Good morning to you. Let me start with uh, with you, uh, Rosalind McCann. Um, so sustainability has been your focus, and this uh, fits in here. I want to, before we get into this interesting uh, grant, interesting uh, program, uh, you're still living in your straw bale house? I am, yes. A straw bale home in a walking, biking-only community. We uh, run, our home is 100% electric, and we overproduce electricity with our solar panels feeding the grid, and um, our monthly electric bill is $8.88 or so. It's the connection fee. Wow. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. So you're definitely practicing what you preach there with sustainability. Um, and I was reading an article. You were saying there in Moab, where you know, you know, uh, many areas of Utah, water scarce. That uh, Moab could certainly um, reach, you know, sustainability if we did better practices. Right. Yeah. So something the city is really focusing in on is green infrastructure. So taking stormwater runoff and infiltrating that better into basins through curb cutting. So that literally means cutting a curbside and then sinking that into sunken basins so that that stormwater is slowed down, uh, the pollution flow is less of a load at the end of the system, and we're able, in effect, to grow shade for the community, and in some senses we're growing fruit on fruit trees and currants, et cetera, and so there's a lot of potential with uh, green infrastructure here, and also working with rainwater capture through rain tanks and uh, gray water systems as well. So. Our health inspector, Orion Rogers, in our area is actually helping to uh, revise state code based on an experiment we ran with my house, of a gray water system. So all every time I shower or do laundry, it waters my landscape, and that's through a gravity-fed system, much less expensive than the current code requires, and we realized the current code was actually restrictive for a lot of people. And so we're simplifying the code, and hopefully it, it will soon be much more accessible for residential residential construction around the state. So, is this is, are these things scalable? You know, you might think, okay, this is Moab, right? And uh, people are going to be supportively some people, and uh, all right, you know, Rosalind McCann lives there, and it's a straw bale house and a walking biking community only. Well, that's only for some people. Is this scalable? Definitely, yeah. So with the Greywater example, actually, there's a large uh, low-income development happening south of town, a high-density development, and they're looking at putting Greywater on every single 
a unit in that development as part of the pilot program as the state code's being revised. So these concepts are definitely scalable on various levels. And uh, with gray water, I will say it makes the most sense to put in as you're building. But uh, with solar, there's still several incentives that people can access to put solar on their house. And as I mentioned, our monthly bill is extremely low. And uh, not having to pay a gas bill helps as well. So it's really thinking outside the box of standard construction and what we can do to save money, have a healthier lifestyle in and outside of our home, while also enhancing the environment. So there's lots of potential there on multiple scales. Uh, so let's move toward this uh, innovative uh, food program. Um, reading an article, Kristen Munson's article in uh, USU Magazine, um, focusing on uh, food there in Moab, and uh, she noted that uh, you know there has been agriculture; it's been established in uh, in Grand County back in the in, in the past. But one of the problems was uh, remoteness. Um, and so I introduced a term that I had not been familiar with: food miles. Uh, Rosalind McKenna, what is that? A food mile takes into account how far that product uh, from the farm has traveled from production to consumption. And so the longer the food mile, the longer the carbon footprint associated with that. And so, you know, the problems associated with that. I imagine loss of freshness as well. Yes, definitely. Uh, Lower nutritional value has been shown in the longer uh, time and distance food is traveling. And, uh, and then also, yeah, of course, you have the emissions that occur from shipping food over long distances. So all of that comes into account. And Moab is an island in essence. There's, there's the closest urban center is um, Grand Junction. And uh, so any food that we can produce here significantly reduces food miles. We've created a great demand uh, through the Moab Grown Initiative with restaurants around town. And now we're realizing, okay, we need to also be focusing at this point on beginning farmer programs and there's a great beginning farmer program that colleagues put on with Utah State University and providing innovative approaches like small plot intensive agriculture uh, through our community, which means uh, working with community members to transition their lawns into gardens and uh, and in exchange they're able to harvest produce from an area where they weren't getting much benefit out of before but putting a lot of water inputs and pesticide inputs, et cetera, into switching that into a functional garden space and then uh, whoever is running that program on several small plots in the community would either bike or drive around to harvest and sell that at a farmer's market or through restaurants. It's worked extremely well in other areas of the country and beyond. In, in Canada, spin farming, it's, it's the acronym for that, is very popular uh, in certain areas like Victoria Island. And so I see a potential for innovative models like that here because the cost of land is so high. Let's jump into this uh, this uh, grant. Maybe uh, I can turn to Reagan Emmons to tell me a bit about this. Uh, so connecting up um, this fresh food with uh, low-income and at-risk uh, ethnic minority populations. Yeah, yeah you want me to just um, yeah, go and do an overview uh, of the grant? Yes, that'd be great. Sure. Um, yeah, it has a um, couple different components. One is um, developing a farmer's market network for the whole state, so helping farmer markets um, work together and um, increasing their ability to um, take on collaborative activities such as um, 
statewide um, programming or implementing joint marketing, maybe getting into advocacy or fundraising campaigns on a statewide level instead of every market just doing, um, working independently and doing their own thing. Um, and then um, we also have a farm dinner um, program where we're going to be trying to do six farm dinners over the next three years um, that will be free to the public. And we're going to be targeting um, uh, working with community organizations in the communities that we're going to be having the farm dinners to reach um, people at the table that can really tell us um, what their experiences are of accessing and purchasing local food and how we might do a better job of being inclusive of of everybody in our communities. Um, and then we are also, um, Lacey can speak more to this, but we're going to be, um, they've already started um, actually this summer a pretty um, expansive marketing campaign to test um, how successful it is to getting the word out about SNAP, which is the um, uh, supplemental nutrition access program that we have here in Utah, and you can use your SNAP benefits at the farmers market. Um, but a lot of people don't know that, and are um, and and we would like to get the word out about that. So we're working on doing marketing campaigns specifically addressing that, seeing if it has an increase, seeing if it works, um, and then from there we're going to be publishing some best practices around that. And the last thing is that we are um, training, I'm going to be trying to train um, CSA managers, so community-supported agriculture organ, um, farmers and other direct market farmers who are, maybe they have a farm stand, um, maybe they don't go to the farmer's market, but they have their own farm stand, training them up to be able to take SNAP um, at their at their businesses so that people can also use their benefits there as well. Very interesting. Um, so let me turn to uh, Lacey Jimenez. Um, so SNAP, popularly known as, uh, as food stamps, mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know this. You can use your food stamps at, uh, at a farmer's market? Yeah, it's not in every farmer's market in the state. Um, Utahns Against Hunger organization has done a great job as far as sharing with the public which markets are accepting SNAP. You can find that at doubleuputah.org. And there you'll see a list as well as instructions to help the public know what to expect when they're going to the farmer's market. Typically, they will get an opportunity to exchange benefits from their Horizon cards, which is what they use for those benefits. And they'll exchange them for tokens or whatever sort of um, monetary replacements being used at the market. And then they can use it just like everyone else at the market who may be paying with cash to with vendors who accept SNAP. And a great program as well is this um, Double Up Food Bucks, which is an incentive program incentivizing for SNAP recipients to get fresh fruits and vegetables. In this, and from our research with Utah SNAP Ed, we found that uh, many of the individuals tend to have less access to fresh fruits and vegetables. I know that even 
um, some researchers, some you know quotes we've had success stories from people have mentioned that they haven't had a fresh fruit or vegetable for months. And just being able to connect that community with local agriculture as well as supporting our local economies with funding that's coming from outside the state. So we're able to keep it here in our local communities and support those farmers. And so it's just a great resource that we want to help the SNAP, um, SNAP recipients know that that's available to them. Uh, so, also, so SNAP benefits can also be used uh, with community-supported agriculture? operations you know i'm not as familiar with that as far as knowing which sort of csas accept snap i'm not sure if any do currently but that's part of the goal of this grant is to uh, research that and try to make that a possibility mm, for right. snap recipients and csa that's what am i right that you can, you can buy a share or shares and then mm-hmm. and then whatever is fresh or whatever they're, they're picking uh, you get a basket or yeah, I think it can depend on depending on each um, CSA or each farm, but typically, yeah, you're buying a sort of share within the farm output that's going to be grown that season, and you'll regularly receive different kinds of products that are that are in season. Mm-hmm. Yeah, let me turn back to uh, Rosalind uh, McCann. Um, so it, uh, interesting that you're you're trying to. Um, carve out some some uh, spaces that ordinarily maybe wouldn't be used for agriculture. And these can be pretty small spaces, I understand. Uh, small spaces in the sense of uh, growing the actual food. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, We can be creative with the, the types of land we're using and the structure that we're advocating for with um, beginning farms. Um, in this article um, that I referenced, uh, Cherie Duncan is uh, there's a picture of her here with a, with a, <laughs> in a small area there. She's trying to trying to go around to places in Moab and uh, and and change some quite small spaces into growing growing crops. She says you can get surprising amount of yield out of these places. Right, she's had a great bounty, and um, she's actually traveling a lot of this summer. But last summer, she was selling every week at the farmers market from these small plots that she'd been farming uh, through her operation, which was Right Arm Farm. Uh, so what, what, uh, what happens? What's, where's the need? I guess the high prices for real estate. So if a person wants to get into agriculture, that becomes prohibitive. And so a smaller space might be more, uh, you know, doable. Right, yeah, definitely. So thinking beyond also the limitations of one small plot. And if, if you have just one small plot, you can still get a great amount of harvest from that. But you can also think beyond that and say, well, what areas of this community uh, would be accessible for me on a, a short biking route or driving route for picking up harvest? And then working one-on-one with those homeowners to see if they would have interest in transitioning a uh, barren lawn into a diversified garden, either in the front or backyard, and uh, then you grow the amount of land that you're growing on um, significantly if you can get buy-in from several people in the community. Um, let's go to break. When we come back, I want to talk about um, farm dinners. Hadn't been aware of this, uh, so we'll talk about farm dinners. That's a part of this project. 
and uh, the marketing effort uh, for for this uh, this grant, and to get into talking about preserving uh, farmland, and interested in talking about uh, Rosalind McCann's uh, work with um, partnering with uh, restaurants, and trying to get local foods in, into restaurants, and the, the benefits and costs there. Um, we are talking about an interesting uh, new grant. Utah State University uh, has been awarded a uh, Farmer's Market Promotion Program grant from USDA. will fund uh, a variety of uh, things, uh, and the goal is to help connect more low-income and ethnically diverse populations to healthy local food. We'll talk more following this break. On the next Putumayo World Music Hour, we'll spend a languid hour in a Cuban cafe listening to acoustic guajiras and boleros and passionate guarachos. Como en cada mañana, me despierto en tus brazos y desnudo en pedazos. I'm Dan Storper. And I'm Rosalie Howard. Join us for Café Cubano, the next Putumayo World Music Hour. Join us Friday night at 10 on Utah Public Radio. Utah Public Radio would like to thank our partners, Beezer Lock and Key, for sponsoring programming on Utah Public Radio. Find out how you can become a sponsor by emailing debbie.andrew at usu.edu. There's still time to purchase tickets to UPR's upcoming summer concert at the Vineyards at Mount Naomi Farms in Hyde Park, Under the Sunset, on Sunday, July 28th. Hear Ryan Conger, who recently returned from Europe after touring with the USU Jazz Orchestra and his band, while enjoying food from Culinary Concepts. Purchase tickets at upr.org. See you there. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Today I'm Tom Williams. Utah State University has been awarded a Farmer's Market Promotion Program grant from USDA. The grant will fund a variety of capacity building, outreach, and marketing activities to help connect more low-income and ethnically diverse populations to healthy local food. And uh, one of the things uh, mentioned previously, and by the way, we are, we are talking with uh, Rosalind Brain McCann. She's a Sustainable Communities Extension Specialist and Associate Professor in the Department of Environment and Society. We're talking with Lacey Jimenez, Marketing uh, Coordinator with this uh, project with Extension. You're with Extension, Lacey? I'm also in the Department of Nutrition, Dietetics, and Food Sciences. Okay. And we have a program. It's the Utah SNAP-Ed. Okay. Um, we're known as Food Sense or Create Better Health that helps teach nutrition education, also physical activity. Um, education to encourage people who have limited resources to be as healthy as they can be and to be able to navigate the environment that they're in to okay. make those choices. Interesting. Mm-hmm. I want to loop back around to, to talk about that. And Reagan Emmons, who is USDA Farmers Market Promotion Program uh, Coordinator, are all with us. I want to turn next to uh, Reagan. Um, so farm dinners, I have not been familiar with this. Tell me about this. Well, Farm dinners have been happening for a long time. Well, I don't know how long, but they've been around for probably a decade or more, and the idea is farm-to-table, so um, harvesting. Usually the dinners are held at a farm, with um, and the produce grown on the farm is cooked up into a meal, and it brings people together, and um, they usually usually take place at the end of the growing season when uh, produce is abundant and the weather is nice, and 
um, the idea for this was to um, really get folks out to the farms um, in communities in our state that are have high levels of poverty and really get um, folks that don't cannot usually attend farm dinners um, to the table and provide a free farm dinner um, that um, and we are really working with community partners in these communities to identify um, folks that will you know would be interested in coming and, and to um, help us help us get um, in the invites out and help us get the words out and we're doing one this year as a pilot program to see um, how it works and to um, learn a lot uh, because we've um, just not ever done this before so our first one is going to be in September um, outside of um, Cedar City at a farm called Nature Hills Farm which is the only farm um, in the county that is accepting SNAP um, so we are really grateful that they are working with us on this pro program and we're we're hoping it'll be a huge success. Um, so what that event will look like is we will have the dinner on the farm. Um, people will come to the farm. They will go on a farm tour if they're interested in that, and then we'll sit down for a meal, and we'll have some facilitated conversation during dinner time about how um, how people are currently accessing fresh food in their communities and wh what they would um how they would make it better and what they would suggest for increasing those opportunities and what they're really interested in buying. And um, a secondary benefit of this event is that we're hoping to promote some networking and information exchange among the community organizations that are working to support these um, programs that advance healthy eating and local food consumption and just getting them to network with each other as well and to further support these causes after the farm dinner is over. Yeah, that's interesting. I, that sounds wonderful. I've been out of the loop. I'll need to get connected with the farm dinner. Uh, let me turn to um, Rosalind McCann. Uh, tell me about the Utah Farm Chef Fork program, connecting up uh, growers with restaurants. Right, that's a great question, actually, because uh, the Farm Chef Fork program led into my decision to apply for this USDA FMPP grant. So um, the, the Farm Chef Fork program was, um, we started that back in 2013, and I say we because it was a group of colleagues up in, in Logan and myself, and that was through an, a different USDA grant to connect smaller scale growers across the state with chefs to improve uh, and decrease food miles and also enhance farm financial security to these smaller scale growers. And so we, as part of this grant uh, back in 2013, and then we received an additional grant to continue those efforts in 2016, we started hosting farm dinners. And we were also hosting mingles where farmers and chefs would connect. It, would, it was basically set up like a farmer's market, but chefs only were invited and they would walk through sample products from the farm booths and talk with the farmers and establish stronger connections and ideally relationships that would extend beyond that event into um, actually working one-on-one -on -one with each other. And so that was the mingles part. And then we, we transitioned more into doing some farm dinners to 
really begin reaching out to the general public because until then the efforts have been entirely with growers and with restaurants. And so we started experimenting farm dinners a few years ago and what we noticed was, and this is not an issue in and of itself as long as there's other avenues that bring in more diverse audiences, but when we were hosting the dinners, it was uh, often the same types of people coming, the quote-unquote foodies, who already were on board and passionate about the local food movement. And you need those people for sure. You need that baseline. But it became very obvious who wasn't at the dinners. And there are people that represent such amazing cultural diversity and skill sets that they bring with them to our state from where they've come from who could be sharing skills and expertise in the agricultural movement with farmers and chefs, but who are absent from these dinners. And like a healthy ecosystem, you need diversity to really thrive. And I was noticing that with the local food events we were putting in, that that wasn't present. And so we wanted to bring these people in to share their experience and their, uh, their skill set, their recommendations for how we can improve our food movement. And that's why these dinners are specifically now targeting ethnic minority groups around the state. And so like Reagan said, we're going to pilot this in Cedar City area this year, and then we'll be hosting around three dinners next year. But the Farm Chef Fork program has been a really fun kickoff for increasing awareness of local food. We've participated each year in Utah's Eat Local Week with different events and We'll continue to help with Utah's Eat Local Week with uh, hosting some additional events this year and future years as well. And so it's just been a really neat thing. And the spinoff of that was the Moab Grown Initiative because there was no local food branding in our... I, I live in Moab. I'm a faculty member based on a regional campus. So there's no local food branding in our community uh, when we started this Moab Grown movement. And so we held a high school contest, had the high schoolers, submit artwork for a potential sticker that restaurants could post uh, that they source from local growers. And we had a winner from that. And now each year, we just change the year. And um, there's a set of guidelines that restaurants have to sign on to for sourcing locally. And the sticker says, ask us how we source from local growers to establish that sense of commitment when customers walk into the restaurant. Uh, very interesting. I understand that you uh, you also you surveyed restaurants, and, and one of the results was interesting to me. The, the, the restaurateurs were less concerned about organic, and more concerned about the story that accompanied the the food. Yeah, so that was a fun project with a graduate student, Kelly Leggett, uh, who was working with a different USDA grant on. Um, a more sustainable type of forage for cattle that would uh, eliminate the need for cattle to go to feedlot for finishing. It's called bird's foot trefoil. And uh, I don't need to go into the technical details of that besides to say that bird's foot trefoil is a legume and so it fixes nitrogen, enhances soil health, and it's more drought tolerant than typically what cattle are grazing on. And then you decrease the food miles of having to ship cattle to a feedlot, etc. So there's a lot of sustainability perks to this type of growing system. And so Kaylee tested this product with restaurants in the Salt Lake area, Park City, and Denver, uh, high-end restaurants that already were 
serving specialty cuts of meat and also with higher end um, butcher shops that were featuring uh, unique types of uh, cuts of meat. And what was interesting in her findings, like you mentioned, is that none of these people really cared about third-party certification. In fact, they saw that as a baseline. And uh, even some of the chefs had mentioned, well, Walmart now uh, features a huge organic section, and it's, it's kind of been uh, washed out because of that. And so instead of advocating third-party certifications, which increases price, and price is a huge thing that these chefs need to consider, they are more focused on the story. So who is this producer that they're getting the the beef from, and um, how is this cattle, this cow raised that is now on your plate, and uh, what are the sustainability practices that went behind this? And so they're they're more focused on the story as opposed to paying for these larger certifications like organic. Yeah, and I've I've seen some signs up at uh, old grocery stores and farmers markets. It, it it seems it appeals to me just uh, you know on on the face of it. Um, this food comes from, you know, X person. They have a photo there. <laughs> and in one case, uh, X number of miles from, you know, the, the, where it traveled. And it, it, it does have some appeal. Um, uh, I wonder, uh, Reagan Emmons, uh, you know, promoting farmer's markets and the like, That does that resonate? The story is the most powerful thing? It's a really powerful thing. Um, the more that farms um, can get their story out there, even at the market with a little poster or a little handout, um, and just in interacting with the customers, they um, are kind of telling their story over time, and you have repeat customers. And it, um, yeah, it's 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 a good way to um, to retain customers and. You know, people um, coming to the farmer's market, they really um, want that transparency. They um, That's one of the reasons they're coming to the market is because they um, like to be able to put a face um, on that name and to put a face with their food in, in some ways. So they're, um, people are, a lot of people really care about that and they really want to know the story. And, um, and a lot of farmers are, I think, really catching on to that, that, um, People actually really care. <laughs> they really care about what their experience is on the farm and what the pictures of the farm and what it looks like and, and what their growing practices um, entail. And, and, you know, and like their customers really, really appreciate that. Uh, let me turn uh, back to uh, Lacey Jimenez. You mentioned earlier, I want to, want to follow up with this uh, SNAP-Ed program. Tell yes. me about this. Yeah, I'd be happy to. And the SNAP-Ed program, it is funded also through the USDA. We um, receive funding also through the state agency, which is the Department of Workforce Services, who oversees the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program here in the state, or the Food Stamps Program. And our goal is really to make healthy living, healthy choices, healthy lifestyles the easiest choice possible for this population. They often experience a lot of different barriers. You know, often people feel like they, you know, it's too expensive to eat healthy. They feel that they're too busy. You know, in Utah in particular, a lot of folks who are eligible for SNAP are working. 
um, they just aren't er earning enough to be able to have enough to have a sort of livable wage. And so they feel like they're very busy. They are stressed about being able to pay the bills, how to keep the light on, know where they live. You know, there's also kind of housing issues here in the state of Utah currently that may add to that stress. And so with SNAP-Ed, we want to remove as many barriers to making healthy choices as possible. Um, one of that may be just not knowing. So we have education classes and these are throughout the state of Utah where people are able to learn how to use what foods they have available to them to follow the MyPlate recommendations and the, um, the guidelines uh, for the dietary guidelines from the USDA to make healthy meals at home. You know, when you're cooking at home, you tend to save more money. We teach them skills to how to plan their meals, also how to budget their money throughout the month for, for food purchases and cooking skills. You know, s sometimes that's become a lost art. <laughs> People leave high school, get out on their own and realize they don't really know how to cook and especially from scratch. So we help them overcome those barriers. We encourage them to find ways to be active just in their everyday life. You know, maybe they feel like they can't afford to go to a gym or have the time to go, but maybe they can park their car a little further away or walk. And, you know, many of them actually do walk because they may have limited access to, to transportation. In addition to this direct education, which we also have available for, for children to encourage them to try new foods, try new things, develop healthy um, habits when they're young, we also try to affect the policy system and environment that people are living in. Some examples, we have a program called Thumbs Up, uh, Thumbs Up for Healthy Choices. And this uses the marketing practice of nudges that would be things like you had mentioned as far as Utah's own or, oh, this was purchased from this farmer recently. Nudges where people are at a decision point deciding what they want to purchase to encourage them to make healthy choices. So these are thumbs up that shows, oh, this is a healthier choice. Maybe they're going in and they want to buy a can of beans. And they see, oh, thumbs up, if I get low sodium beans, that's a healthier choice. And I'm still getting what I need, I'm still getting beans, but I'm choosing an option that's within my budget that will be better for my health. And also we have social marketing, which basically is just to encourage, help people remember the things that they're learning in our classes and to really support them, help them feel like they're not alone in making these healthy decisions. This, this new journey that they may be taking for better health. And it's important. Often, a lot of the negative health outcomes that come from, you know, behaviors that we may have, the low-income audience tends to suffer from them more than, than those who have more resources. And so really, in the end goal is to help them be healthy, even if they are on hard times, that everyone should have access, not just to food, but to healthy food so they can have a, a long and healthy life. Mm. We'll uh, just a few minutes left in this segment, and then uh, we'll take a break and come back and reintroduce you to one of our uh, commentators, Lael Gilbert, and uh, hear one of our uh, food uh, commentaries, uh, bread and butter. Um, but I uh, want to turn uh, for some final words on this to... Uh, 
uh, first to uh, Reagan Emmons. Uh, so what uh, this particular uh, program, uh, trying to g- get fresh food to uh, low-income and minority uh, populations with this grant, what will success look like? What's, what's the goal? Increased consumption, increased sales of local fresh food, increased consumption, um, um, higher number of um, farm, you know, maybe uh, farmers entering, uh, people entering the field of farming, um, increased um, people, um, direct market farmers and farmers markets being able to accept SNAP and having the capacity to 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 take SNAP and um, and get involved with the Double Up Food Bucks program as well. Those are those are the basic metrics. Yeah. So we'll we'll watch with interest. A very worthwhile program. Lacey Jimenez, what uh, for you? What's what will success look like? I think success will look like for me and for the marketing is that our target audience, whether it's the low income, also minorities. I didn't really get to touch on that. Um, but we are working with our extension specialist over Latino programming mm-hmm. to make sure that we're reaching um, that demographic, which is one of the largest minorities in the state of Utah, as well as recognizing work that we've done in SNAP Ed with the refugee population and other groups that serve those communities to help these people see themselves at the farmer's market, feeling comfortable going, knowing that they are welcome there and that it's a great place for them to be able to be a part of the community and that they can overcome those barriers to accessing fresh fruits and vegetables because we really want to see them being able to have that access since they usually don't. Mm. Um, And Rosalind McCann, we'll give you the last word here. I want to uh, talk about this. You talked about the ecosystem of the food movement, right? And that's first in are the foodies, and we need them, right? Right. But but trying to expand this, um, how far out can it be expanded? I guess this program is part of that. Right. Well, I, I will just back up for one second and say what Lacey said to me is, is dead on, just really um, ensuring that people feel welcome going to these events and to the farmer's market, et cetera. And I... I, I feel like I also selfishly want to get to know these other groups in my community that uh, haven't been involved so much in the local food movement, so I'm excited to expand my networks and people I'm working with. So I'm just really excited as we move forward in enacting these programs in the next couple of years. And it's a three-year grant, so we've got some time to uh, experiment and then really hit the ground running, ideally year two. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, watch with great interest. This is uh, very interesting uh, and worthwhile. Yes, Lacey. Keep an eye out for eat fresh, buy local. That's that's our messaging that um, was determined from preliminary or formative evaluations. So okay. when you see those marketing things, it has to do with this project. Okay, eat fresh, buy local. Eat fresh, buy local. All right. Um, so we've been talking with Lacey Jimenez, a marketing coordinator with the project. Tell me the rest of your title again. <laughs> so title here on campus, I'm the social marketing and eligibility program coordinator okay. for Utah SNAP Ed. Great. Thank you health. for coming in. Happy to. Thank you. Uh, Reagan Emmons is USDA Farmers Market Promotion Program Coordinator. Thank you so much. Thank you.
And Rosalind Brain McCann is a Sustainable Communities Extension Specialist. She's also Associate Professor in the Department of uh, Environment and uh, Society. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, we'll go to break. And when we come back, we'll hear from uh, our food commentator. You'll hear some similar themes here uh, from Lael Gilbert more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Utah Festival Opera and Musical Theater, June 23rd through August 3rd in Logan. Full orchestra, concerts, workshops, and performances of Mary Poppins, Newsies, West Side Story, and more. 146 events. Details at utahfestival.org. UPR is everywhere you are. With classical music programming, news, and information, statewide through 36 signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org and through the new UPR app, UPR is only a push of the button away. Hi, I'm Steve Williams, host of Jazz Time here on Utah Public Radio. I hope you'll join me Sunday evenings for a journey through the world of jazz music, from ragtime to bop, from Havana to Logan, Utah. Tune in for a bit of history, commentary, the occasional interview, and of course, all that jazz. Jazz Time, Sunday evenings at 6 o'clock on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah today. We'll end the program with um, a reintroduction to one of our commentators. And uh, this fits in because Lael Gilbert and Jen Ashton um, produce our bread and butter segment, which uh, was heard regularly in this program, now is heard uh, in the Splendid Table on Sundays. Um, and uh, so I thought it'd be interesting to reintroduce you to at least Lael. She's the one I've had the interview with <laughs> and when we started this program. Uh, so here is my conversation with Lael Gilbert from a couple of years ago. Lael, you live in Logan. I'm a longtime Cache Valley resident. Yep. Uh, coming up in just a few minutes, we'll be hearing your first commentary. Those will be part of, uh, of Access Utah, I think uh, most on Wednesdays. Um, so... Um, I interrupted you with your introduction. So, longtime resident of uh, Logan, what's what's your back educational background first? Well, I have been writing for a long time. I um, have a degree in journalism, and then moved on to other things. I work up at Utah State University now, um, doing science writing. Um, but my first love has always been writing and words. So, um, and you're going to be focusing on food. Understand it. You, you have a love of, I guess, all things food. Yep, my love of words combines nicely with my passion for food. Mm-hmm. Um, I've always, I've always found a lot of interest and joy in in culinary traditions. Um, I think probably that was developed most. I spent some time in Italy and. Um, the Italian culture has a really rich tradition of um, food and the vocabulary around food and the ingredients and sourcing them, where they come from. Um, you may know that Italians um, eat very differently than Americans. They sit down for several hours in the middle of the day. They take a break from whatever they're doing and sit down usually for about two hours for lunch. And they talk about what's in front of them. They enjoy it. They criticize it. They um, talk about how it could be better, 
different experiences they've had. I I think about, you know, you hear a lot how the Inuit people have 100 words for snow. Well, Italians have 100 words for chew. (laughs) (laughs) that, That just culture and vocabulary is really rich. And spending time there really gave me a love you know when you spend so much time staring at your plate you you really start thinking about the food and why you like it where it comes from and why it's interesting why you don't like it and um it it was an eye-opening experience for me hmm. so that's where it began then to, you really got into food with observing the italian culture and their yeah i think so their food culture i think so i I think definitely in Italy, I felt like I had a right to think that deeply about food. Mm. You know, I've always, my favorite book as a child was Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I just, I've always loved the sensory experience of food. So it's it's been a passion for me my whole life. Um, But in Italy, I really found the vocabulary for Mm -hmm. it. You said uh, Italy. You, you, I guess you felt permission to think that much about food. Right. Was it the case in in America before that experience that you maybe thought about, a lot about food, but our culture doesn't our culture doesn't really go there. Doesn't permit that. Exactly. Well, we don't recognize it. Mm-hmm. I think you know, and I'm guilty of this too. But for many of us, lunch is stuffing a fast food hamburger in our mouth when we're driving from one spot to another. It's it's not an event where in other places the meal itself is the event. The food is the event. And so um, I think in Italy it, I started thinking about why we have that difference and what we gain and lose through those cultural differences. I was just thinking you were talking about that. Uh, probably describes me a lot of meals. Uh, it's just something to get through. So I'm losing something is probably what you tell me. For sure. I mean, if if you think, what did I have yesterday for lunch? A lot of us can't even remember. And um, I think that's a shame. I think we should remember what we're eating. We should know what it is. We should understand where it comes from. We should be able to cook it. We should be mm-hmm. able to, that should, the cooking should be part of the experience. We should get our hands in the dough and, um, you know, not just taste the salt and fat going down our throat, but feel it and smell it and have a much ri- richer sensory experience. Mm. Of course, where the rubber meets the road here, uh, I think you have kids, right? Do you, yes. do you, do you involve them in, and, and what's that experience like? Are they, will they follow you in, in, in getting their hands in the dough and, and oh, preparing the food? And- I, I hope so. You know, you can't really control your kids, mm-hmm. but we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> I, I thought a lot about that because um, my growing up experience was different where my mom um, worked um, and got advanced degrees in education and was a very um, independent, liberated woman. But that meant Stouffer's lasagnas for us growing up. That's mm-hmm. that's what I grew up on, pretty much. And of all six of us, I have five siblings, we are all foodies now. We, mm-hmm. we all have this passion for food and where it comes from, how to make it better. And I thought about why that is. And I, I think that we have an intrinsic desire to feed ourselves and to have the control and understanding. 
And so I've tried to give that to my kids. Um, but, you know, they'll probably eat Stouffer's lasagna <laughs> when they grow up. <laughs> Maybe it'll alternate by generation, right? That's right. Uh, part of a reason, <clears throat> one reason, phrase it that way, to make your own food is is to make it more nutritious, right? We, Absolutely. We have a, a part of our culture in America is, is processed food. Yeah. And in fact, um, I'm, I'm a big fan of both Michael Pollan and um, Mark Bittman, who are food advocates. And recently, um, I just read an article about that everyone has the right to nutritious, affordable, and sustainable food. And the way to make that happen is to get back into the kitchen, to understand um, the ingredients. And when you understand the ingredients, you're going to choose higher quality ingredients. The person who's, you know, plopping it into a plastic dish for you just doesn't have the same um, care that you will. And to um, ask how it's made, and you're, you're not going to put as many um, chemicals in it because you don't need it to rest on a store shelf for two months before you eat it. And you're just not going to eat as much junk food. Sure, once in a while, you'll cook fries at home, but you won't cook fries five times in a week. You just won't. It's too hard. It's too messy. Cooking just empowers you to eat healthier. It's a natural outcome of, of producing food at your home. And when you eat as a family, you become a stronger family. Mm. There's a lot of science mm. behind that. That segues into what I was going to ask you, uh, and that is time. You know, we're busy. Um, so I was going to ask you, can you fit these principles into a short amount of time? But maybe, maybe you'll tell me it's better to slow down. And well, you may have heard of the slow food movement, mm-hmm. which emphasizes, you know, we we try and be so efficient and energetic, but we really do have to put a priority on food and eating. We have to take the time to cook it, understand it, enjoy it, and share it with our family. And there's no shortcut for that. And the only shortcut is handing it over to someone else to do. They're just not going to do it as good as you do. Mm-hmm. So. Do you have, uh, do you have uh, I guess you, you would suggest Michael Pollan's books, Mark Bittman's books. What, uh, what are yeah. the resources? Uh? So I, I'm not a um, – I'm more about enjoying food than advocating for a certain type mm-hmm. of eating. I've, I've stepped back from the advo- advocating because – I just find so much joy. You know, I eat Cheetos sometimes. I do. (laughs) But there are a lot of great resources out there if you're interested in knowing more about the slow food movement and um, how to eat better. But really, I think the most important step for me and the first step is to enjoy your own food Mm -hmm. and to think about why you enjoy it, where it comes from, how it's made, and how to make it better. Mm. And I think once when I do that, I end up going to the gardener's market here in Cache Valley or thinking about rather than buying a product in the store, thinking about how I could make it at home. And, and I find that tremendously interesting and empowering. Mm. And that's what most of my commentaries are about is that mm. experience. That's my conversation from a couple of years ago with Lael Gilbert. She is one of the hosts uh, for Bread and Butter, it's our food segment, which is heard uh, each week, Sunday morning, 11 a.m., uh, in the uh, program, The Splendid Table. Uh, so hope you'll uh, check that uh, program out. You can also find it online at upr.org, upr.org. Uh, 
And uh, thanks to everyone who participated in the program today. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Everyone has a favorite author, actor, musician, or comedian. At All Things Considered, we don't just bring you the news of the day. We introduce you to the coolest people you thought you knew and learn what really makes them tick. What you hear might just surprise you. Join us every afternoon for All Things Considered from NPR News, conversations that connect. Join us for NPR's All Things Considered weekday afternoons at 3 here on Utah Public Radio. Over the Memorial Day weekend, Tyler Riggs and David Fawcett came into the UPR studio to talk, to listen, and hopefully to bridge the current cultural and political divide. Both heartily recommended one small step we can all take. We need to learn, I think, as a society to just get along better. Invite your neighbors over to a barbecue that have completely different beliefs than you. We've got to start having the barbecues. I need to reach out to people and starting in the neighborhood that I don't talk to and get to know them. And you don't have to become best friends, but you should find some element of common ground. If you'd like to participate, go to upr.org and sign up for StoryCorps' One Small Step. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org.